who will be in Psalm chapter 91, Psalm 91. Uh, For the remaining part of the year, we will take a pause on the Gospel of John, and we will pick up John chapter 18, starting in the new year. I didn't want to start that section here at the end of the year, so I'll do a couple of different things, but today is the Psalms. Uh, I'm going to preach the Psalms this morning, and I'm going to preach them again tonight. Um, As you turn there to Psalm 91, just to give you a word of encouragement or a word of direction, just that's benefited my soul more than anything, is memorizing psalms. So all I can do is encourage you. I know we do scripture memory. We have scripture memory each month. But I'm just telling you as your pastor, one of the most beneficial things for me personally in my walk with Christ is the memorization of scripture. And it can be used in so many countless ways, but for your own soul, for your own soul. And so Psalm 91 is one of the ones I recently memorized, uh, but I've done others, uh, the one tonight as well. But I just encourage you to take time and to read through, meditate, memorize, because God will use it in your life greatly. All right, I simply titled the sermon this morning, the perks of the Christian life. Uh, why perks? Because I was working with the letter P. That's the only thing that worked. But there's benefits that come to the Christian life. I hope this message would be an encouragement. I hope it would be profitable to you. But I do want you to know there is a benefit of being in the family of God. And I want you to be able to experience some of these benefits. Very, very short introduction, but with all the abundant promises, we'll see a lot of these in Psalm 91, but with all the abundant promises the Christian has from God. Surely this morning if I ask you, are there promises in the Bible from God to the Christian, you would say yes. With all these abundant promises, it's a wonder, to me it's a wonder, that more people don't experience the perks of the Christian life. It seems like if all of these promises are true, we would be enjoying them. Now, it is understandable to me that lost people, I'm not really boggled in my mind about this, but lost people worry. Lost people have stress. Lost people experience anxiety. Lost people have anger issues. Lost people addict themselves to numerous types of vices. Uh, They look for satisfaction in all the wrong places. They scratch their lotto tickets, they drink their alcohol, they take in their drugs, and they drown themselves in materialism. I'm not surprised in the least regard that lost people do this. What is beyond comprehension is confessing Christians doing the same thing the world does, rather than enjoying the benefits that are guaranteed by God to you. I don't need the path of the world. God's promised me so much, and I can take satisfaction in those promises. There's a tons of quotes you could look up to see for Psalm 91, but let me give you one by C.H. Spurgeon. It is here in this psalm that the believer finds great satisfaction. C.H. Spurgeon says, quote, In the whole collection, all 150 psalms, there is not a more 
cheering psalm. Its tone is elevated and it is sustained throughout. Faith is at its best and it speaks nobly. What an encouraging word as we turn our attention to Psalm 91. Verses 1 and 2. This is the position of the Christian. Okay, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This is the position of the believer. Now think about these first two verses as we look at them. You have four metaphors laid out for us. What are the four metaphors that he gives us? He gives us a shelter. He gives us a shadow. He gives us a refuge. He gives us a fortress. Now, take the common sense meaning of these four metaphors. What do we do with a shelter? Shelters are where you go when there's a storm. You go to a shelter to get out of the wind. You go to a shelter to get out of the rain. Something that is contrary to your desire comes, you go to a shelter for safety. As you think about the word shadow, we live in Texas. We understand July and August. Shadows mean something that time of year because it might be two degrees cooler in the shade than it is in the sun. So we put up a cover, we put up a tarp, we get under a tree, we get on the side of a building because the shade feels good. Or you take the word refuge. One of the things I used to love to do was duck hunt and goose hunt uh, down in South Texas, but they had these refuges down there. What is a refuge for duck and geese? It's a place they can land, and it's illegal for you to shoot them there. They know they can land there and not be shot to death. God is our refuge. We can come to him and have protection. In his presence, there is safety for his children. He's our refuge. In his presence, we are not attacked. We are not gossiped. We are not slandered. We are not ridiculed. In his presence is a refuge where there is safety. And he gives the word fortress. It has to make you think something of a castle. If you think of the old castles and you maybe have a moat around it, you have these big walls and you have all these barriers around and when you see an enemy coming, you're outside of the castle, you run into the fortress. You shut the gate, you raise the ramparts and you've got this defense and you can take the battering of the enemy. The psalmist starts out and he says, that's what our God is for us. Now notice, he says, he gives us four names for God, does he not? Our God is the most high. There's none higher than him. There's none that can stay his hand. And when his will is given, it will be accomplished. No one can thwart God's will. He's the most high God. He's also the Almighty. There's none more stout than he is. Every ounce of power is in God, and none can stay him. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign over the universe. And then look at the fourth word. He puts the personal pronoun with it. He is my God. 
So you get a most high and almighty, the Lord, my God, and this one that is named four times is our shelter, our shadow, our refuge, and our fortress. You say, well, that's surely good news, but who is this good news applied to? Those who dwell and those who abide. Those who dwell and those who abide. To dwell, the Hebrew word for dwell, has the idea to it of to sit down. You, you remember Psalm 1, right? Walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffer. This idea of I'm just going to sit in the presence of my God. I'm just going to take up a spot here, and I'm just going to spend time with God for a while. The person who dwells with him and the person who abides. Let me help you a little bit about American Christianity and its faults. The idea of American Christianity was you have this God over here on a Sunday, and you have this world over here on these other six days. And so you got these people who confess to be Christians, and they come by and they visit God on Sunday for an hour. It's about the max for most people. They visit Him for an hour, but they dwell and they abide over here for their lives. This is the exact opposite of what the psalmist is telling you. Look, there's no compartmentalized Christianity. The Christian life, six days a week or on Sunday, stays remaining the same. We dwell in his presence, in your cubicle, in your truck, at the cash register, when you shop, when you do your hobby. All of your life is an exhibit of dwelling in the presence of the Almighty, abiding with him. You say, everything you do, you say, well, pastor, you ride a bicycle. Yes, and I memorize psalms while I ride my bicycle. And they have this cool app, and you can play it, and the Bible can be read to you in your ears while you ride. Everything thing becomes a part of what God is because that's where we dwell. That's where we abide. It's our presence is with him. This is who the psalmist is saying. He's saying this to us. This is the position of the Christian. He knows nothing of the position of the Christian being Sunday for an hour and the rest of the week being for the world. That's not Christianity. Christianity is the position of of dwelling and abiding in the presence of the Most High, the Almighty, the Lord, my God. The promise, now I'm going to do the same thing on every one of these applications. It's like a one-point application. The promise, verses 1 and 2, is only for those. Don't misunderstand. The promise is for those who dwell and for those who abide. You don't dwell and you don't abide. Don't be complaining that God's not keeping his promise. His promise is for those who dwell and for those who abide. And he will keep his promise. I think I only have one more from Spurgeon, but let me give you one more. And it says, C.H. Spurgeon puts it this way. The blessings here promised are not for all believers. What's promised is not for all believers. He said, that's strange. He says, it's for those who live in close fellowship with God. He says, every child of God looks towards the inter-sanctuary. They look in towards the mercy seat. Yet all do not dwell 
in the most holy place. Oh, they run to it at times. They enjoy occasional approaches, but they do not habitually reside in the mysterious presence. Is that you? You want to experience these promises in this chapter, you have to dwell and you have to abide. Number two, verses three through six, protection. For he will, his promises start unfolding now. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from the deadly pestilence. He he will cover you. Look at this description. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Now notice, because of these promises, notice verse 5. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the, uh, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Three through six. Look at the protection that is promised to those who dwell and abide. Deception, number one, under protection. There's a snare. Snares are deceptive. You hide snares, you camouflage snares in order to trap your game. Hidden things intent on capturing their victim. He says, he will deliver you from the snare. What are a few snares? Think about spiritual things. False teachers. Appearing spiritual, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Think about worldly philosophies. They appear scientific, but they are void of truth. Think about peer pressure. They appear concerned for you, but they're only self-centered. Think about carnal delights, appearing harmless, but promoting idolatry. The person who dwells, the person who abides, will be delivered from these snares. You won't get caught up in them because God promised to deliver you. Then he also says in verse 3, he will deliver you from the deadly pestilence. Now, it may get a little controversial in this section, but I still believe the Bible's true and I believe the world's wrong. And so let the controversy begin. But let's start with a story here. He will deliver you from deadly pestilence. You believe that? Everybody's nervous. Sure was a lot of fear running through the corridors when COVID came out. What was you afraid of? Well, I was afraid I was going to... Uh-huh. You see, but God will deliver you. Now, hold on to your thoughts. I know people die of COVID. I get that. But think about this thought. You have to go back in history. There's a man by the name of Lord Craven. It's a popularly known story. He was a Christian in London. Now, Lord Craven, in that city, in that day, a plague was ravaging the city in the 15th century. And so Lord Craven planned what? To leave the city. I mean, he had a cottage in the country, and this plague is killing all these people in the city, so I'll go to the country. So he calls for his carriage. They're going to come and pick him up, and he's going to go to the country where he can be safe, right? That's the idea that he's planning. But as he's walking down the hall of his city home to his waiting carriage, 
he overheard one of his servants say to the other servant, quote, I suppose by my Lord's quitting London to avoid the plague that his God lives in the country and not in the city. Let's run and hide from the plague because, you know, God can't do it. He's like, no. Lord Craven was so pierced in his heart, he immediately canceled his trip to the country. Not just canceled the trip, but he says, my God lives everywhere and can preserve me in town as well as in the country. I will stay where I am. And he cared for the plague victims, and throughout the plague of the city, he never caught the disease. Amen? But yet we have a whole world reeling in fear, a Christian world reeling in fear because of COVID. By the way, do we not believe in the sovereignty of God and the providence of God that if God, before the earth was founded, has decided that you will die from COVID, you could have 5,000 booster shots and you will still die of COVID? My point is not whether you take a booster or not take a booster, whether you wear a mask or not wear a mask. My point is, are you responding in fear because you don't trust the promises of God? Here's the thing. The fear drives us. My my brother, my friend Jonathan, is walking through the store in the midst of COVID. He don't have a mask on. He's in the store, and this woman comes for him and confronts him and begins to yell at him because he doesn't have a mask and basically assaults him verbally. And Jonathan hears her out, and he says, Ma'am, can I ask you a question? She said, Yeah. He said, Are you a Christian? And she said, well, yes, I am. I'm a faithful attender to blah, 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 church. And he goes, why is it that you have enough boldness to confront a stranger about a physical thing, but you don't care about the souls of people spiritually and you won't share the gospel with anyone? This is what the church did. We, we get all fired up about something, about physical things, but the spiritual doesn't affect us. Here in our text, the Lord is saying, I promise I will deliver you. Now, you say, well, I know Christians that died of COVID. You hang on. We'll get to that in a moment. He promises deliverance. Now, verse 4, this is how he's described that he will protect us. Like a mother bird, Jesus describes himself with this same terminology in Matthew. In Matthew, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? This idea of pinions and wings and drawing his people close to him and guarding them. And he says, not just like a mother bird, but like a warrior. The the words of verse 4. Shield, buckler, armor, rampart, fortress. Look at verse 4. Look at this. Under his pinions, under his wings, and then his faithfulness is a shield and buckler. These are warrior terminologies. The question in verse 4, it says, his faithfulness. What exactly is our shield and buckler? Well, God's faithfulness is our shield and buckler. God's faithfulness to what? He's faithful, and he's a shield and buckler. Where, I need the object. His faithfulness to what? Well, the, the, the form of the Hebrew word is a reference that is where we get the word 
truth. He is faithful to what is true. He's faithful to his own word. If my God promises he will deliver me, I can believe it. I don't have to live in fear. I don't have to go around wondering all these things. My God has given me a promise, and he is faithful to do what truth says. So we think about Psalms. Let me give you two more. Psalm 117, verse 2. For great is his steadfast love toward us. Great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Our Psalms 146.6, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. It's an eternal faithfulness to what he has deemed to be true. God is faithful to do what he says he will do. Truth. Note, the promise is applied to those who dwell and those who abide. The direct result of the promise, I will deliver. Under the pinions, under the wings, right? Are you tracking? Okay. Here's the direct result. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where uh, Bodie Bauckham says, are you picking up what I'm laying down? He says, the direct result is the Christian will not fear. You go to Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, the present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. I come to this text, I come to the same conclusion. The result of his promise is found in verse 5, you will not fear. I've got a Bible that tells me the Christian doesn't live in fear, and I live in a world where Christians confess to be Christians, yet live in fear every day. Something is in contradiction. Somebody's not true. Is the Bible true or is the confessing Christian true? When I read the promises of God, belief is more than assent. I have to believe that in such a sense that I take it in as real. We will not fear. You will not fear. And he goes, terror of night. He gives arrow by day, pestilence in the darkness, destruction in noonday. Night and day, the whole period of 24 hours, the Christian does not have to live in fear. Psalm 56, verse 10 and 11. In God, whose word I praise. That's what I'm doing. I'm praising his word this morning. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. By the way, the question ends in that verse, what can man do to me? What's he going to do? You better fear him who can cast both soul and body into hell. You don't fear man. So, Hebrews 13, 6, he says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. That's who helps me. That's who helps the Christian. You can say that. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. The application of point number two, the promise is for those who believe. If you believe God, this is true for you, and you do not have to live in fear. If you walk up to the castle, and there's two lions that look like they're going to eat you, that's all right. God tied them up. You just walk on forward. Don't go back. 
you read Pilgrim's Progress, you'll know what I'm talking about. Number three, the privilege. We had a position. We had protection. Here's the privilege, verses 7 through 10. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes to see the, and see the recompense of the wicked. Why is that? Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Let me give you a point of clarification on this privilege. Listen closely. This answers the question I left lingering a moment ago. It is not that believers will never experience disease. It's not that. It's not that they will not be killed in warfare. It's not that. But the Christian will never experience these things as a judgment for his sins before God. Oh, you may die of COVID, and you may die in war, but you will not die as a judgment for your sins. Because God delivers, God protects. Yeah, let me give you another example. So there's a wicked time in the country, right? And there's this wicked king. And he says, look here, if you don't bow down and worship my idol, I'm going to throw you in that fire and I'm going to burn you to death. And there's these three kids, young boys, and they say, you do whatever you want to do, but know this, our God will deliver us. Now, he will deliver us by us being burnt up in the fire, or he will deliver us by sparing us through the fire. But know this, O king, he will deliver us from your hand. Or you could even take another guy by the name of Daniel. Look, God, you can throw me in this lion's den, and I may be eaten by lions, or I may be spared by lions, but either way, Daniel will be delivered as a child of God. Like unto Jesus and the apostles who were martyred, they suffered greatly, but the evil or the plague was not the last word. By the way, do use some common sense. You're not getting out of this deal alive anyway. We don't live in fear until the day of your death. Live in confidence in your God until you die. Verses 8 and 9 show us the condition. Faith, just look with your eyes. The frequency. The Lord is the dwelling place of the believer. This refers to, as Martin Luther would say, this refers to one who really dwells and does not merely appear to dwell, and does not just imagine that he dwells. It's talking about the one who actually dwells in the presence of the Most High. The believer is constantly present with the Lord. Favorite spot, I don't know if you have one. You ought to have a favorite spot. Favorite spot in this psalm is the refuge of the believer is the Lord. I love to be with him for his only place. I have absolute safety. The constant battle the believer faces in the world leads to a heightened appreciation of refuge. Oh, if you want to work with ducks and geese for a moment again, you just think about it. If you're a duck in this world and you're flying around during duck season and pellets keep flying by your head, you kind of get a little nervous. 
And so you appreciate it when you can land somewhere in a designated zone that's a refuge and they can't shoot at you. And you value that place because it's there you find safety. This is our God. Look, at all the bullets that are being fired at Christianity in our day, I'm really, that's why one of the things I love about Sunday. It's the day I can be with brothers and sisters in Christ and I can be around the Word of God. We have prayer time at 8 in the morning. We can have church at this time. I can come read in the afternoon. I can come back and have church again tonight. And I'm like, man, I'm thankful that I don't have to be out there. I can be in this refuge today and my soul can be encouraged and I can be strengthened and I can worship and I can be satisfied in my God. The refuge becomes very, very special. And you know what happens? The more you value the refuge, the more you start saying no to the things of the world because you don't want those things interfering with your time in your refuge. Application, the promise is for those who believe, dwell, abide, and know the Lord as their refuge. We get to Providence now, verses 11 through 13. This is what God says he will do. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Hmm. Command his angels concerning you. In the ministry of angels, if you will, for just a moment, you'll remember the great temptations the devil brought towards the Lord Jesus in Matthew 4. You remember at the end of those temptations in verse 11, he says, and Jesus walked in his way. Well, it says, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Angels guard you as you walk in the ways of God as he's prescribed in his word. Now, when the devil uses this verse here in Psalm 91, when he uses it in regards to the temptation of Jesus, it's the only verse in all the Bible the devil quotes that we have record of. When he quotes it, you do know he misquotes it. He misquotes it because he leaves out a phrase. He leaves out the phrase, in all your ways. He leaves that part out. And that's very, very important because that's the devil's whole plan. He wanted to deceive Jesus from walking in the ways God had ordained for him to walk in another way. Because as long as Jesus walks in the way that God has prescribed, then he is ministered to and protected. It's when you get out of the way that you become subject to downfall. When your way becomes God's way, God's way becomes your way, and on that path, he will minister to you and sustain you throughout your life. Look, let me put it this way. Presuming upon God by jumping off the top of a skyscraper while quoting this verse is sinful presumption. He's not saying that. He's saying, you walk the path that I've laid out for you to walk in my word, and I will sustain you through everything that you go through. You can trust him in that. His providence will provide strength, will provide comfort, will provide refuge, will provide a fortress, will provide a shade, will provide everything your soul needs so long as you walk in the ways of the Lord, on his path, even if you're burnt at the stake. You say, that doesn't sound like a good road. But if you are burnt at the stake because you're walking the right road, even in the moment when they're lighting the fire, you can say, no, there's no need to tie me up. I'm not going anywhere. 
And then you can break out and begin to sing. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. You see, how can you do that at that moment? Read the history of the martyrs. It's in that moment they're ministered to by the Spirit of God, strengthened to give glory to Christ. That's the way our Lord walked, right through Calvary. And notice in verse 13, the mission, faithfulness to God, is the way to crush the enemy under our feet. You'll see the word lion, you'll see the word serpent. In verse 13, the Bible refers to Satan as a roaring lion, and it also refers to Satan as the ancient serpent in Revelation 12 and Revelation 20. And note, it is Jesus who triumphed over him by the cross and trampled him under his feet. Providence, everything you need to walk this path, he will provide. The promise is for those who walk in his ways. Put these together. You don't believe the scripture. You don't dwell. You don't abide. You don't walk in his way. You cannot say that God's not keeping his promise. His promise is for those who are doing that. Walking, dwelling, abiding, living out Christianity. God will provide everything you need along the way. Lastly, 14 through 16, look at the text. This is where we wrap things together. Because he holds fast to me in love. I will do six things. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, that first line, because he holds fast to me in love. I'm not going to call out all the references, but just listen to how translations word this Hebrew phrase. The one we just read, because he holds fast to me in love. Another one, because he has loved me. Another one, because he has set his love upon me. Because he is devoted to me. Because in me he hath delighted. Because he has given me his love. You must note here. These promises, these last climactical promises for the believer are for the one who has fallen head over heels in love with Christ. For the person who's madly and sanely in love with Christ, then these promises are for you. I will deliver, protect, answer, be with, rescue, satisfy. Please, oh church, not maybe you here, but please church it broad, stop misapplying Romans 8, 28. At least read the whole verse or read something around it. What does Romans 8, 28 say? And we know for those who love God, we just identified the group. You cannot take Romans 8, 28 and apply it to a pagan unbeliever. It's not going to work out for his good. They're going to wake up in hell under the wrath of God for all of eternity. The promise to work out all things for your good is for every person who truly loves God and has been called by God. If you love God and are called by God, yes, everything will work out for your good. As John Stott said, quote, 
God is the supreme object of the believer's love as well as faith. And it is to those who love God that the assurance is given that in all things God works for their good. One of the great problems is this. People come to conclusions about God and His Word because certain things the Word says do not come true for them. They say, the Bible says this, but it didn't happen for me. Did you read all of it? Dwell, abide, believe, walk in His ways. Are are you loving Him and cleaving to Him in love? You say, well, I'm not doing all those things. Then these promises don't apply. Confessing Christians are the ones who have promoted this problem of misapplied Scripture. It was a sappy Christian music and sappy Christian books from Lifeway back in the day. And they put them on coffee cups and put them on t-shirts and apply them misguidedly to people. And go into hospitals and stand over hospital beds of lost people and tell them it's going to work out for their good. And then they die and all the family's like, see, your God's no good. See, your Bible's not true. It's because we didn't take the Bible in context and use it rightly. When the promises that are made to Christians are misguidedly applied to non-Christians, the damaging result is of disbelieving the Bible is propagated. So my last point of application, the promise is for those who hold fast to the Lord in love. When the promises of God are not being experienced by the confessing Christian, it is time for the Christian to examine his own heart. What do you spend your time doing? I mean, look, Call it meddling, call it whatever you want. Is this all you have of Christianity is 1045 to 12? That's not what Psalm 91 is referring to. Where do you spend your time? What or who do you seek in time of trouble? When trouble happens, just be honest with yourself. Do you turn on the news? Do Do you listen to the media to get information about what to do? Is that your response? That's not what Psalm 91 is saying. It's not what it's saying at all. Are you giving honor and thanks to God for all He does for you? Why do you not have more satisfaction, more peace, more stability in your life, seeing that God provides everything you need? You know, right now, today, for the Christian who is living out Psalm 91, he lacks not one good thing. Nothing. It doesn't matter what his car is, what his house is, what his relationships are. The Christian lacks nothing because God has promised Are you fully satisfied in your relationship with the Lord? Let me just ask you, are you fully satisfied in your relationship with the Lord? Or do you leave this place and you're still as misguided as when you came in and you want to go out to the store and buy a lotto ticket that you might be happy? Do you honestly think another buck's going to make you happy? Do you think taking another drink of alcohol is going to make you happy? Do you think some other little thing over here, your hobby or this or that, is going to make you happy? Are you not satisfied with your God? Is He not enough for you? Look, God is so big, I am sure that he is big enough to satisfy your soul. And if you're not satisfied with him, what's the reason? If not, why? Do do you hold fast to the Lord in love? 
Hey, let's put it this way. Did you have to come here today? Is this an obligation? Is this inconvenient for you today? i got to take time because I'll look bad if I don't show up for church. Is that why you're here? Are you here? Because you love God and you don't want to be nowhere else. Love has drawn you here because you have great love for Christ. Is that why you're here? Or is it just obligation? Oh, pity the marriage that only functions out of obligation. It should not be that way in the marriage with our groom. We should love him. There is not and cannot be a problem with what God says and what God does. So when these promises are not experienced, it must be an issue with me. Sin is a way of sin has a way of robbing the believer of the benefits of the Christian life. But repentance is the cure. Sin causes a man to be robbed of seeing what God's doing. God remains faithful no matter what man does. But God's faithfulness to his promises become invisible to the man who is consumed in his own sin. And sadly, the unbeliever in this very room, this morning, all the unbelievers in the world never experience the perks of the Christian life. They're never satisfied. They have no refuge. They have no fortress. They have no wings to get under. They have no pinions to cover them. They have no safety no matter what they do. The position of the unbeliever is outside of Christ. The protection for the unbeliever is left into the hands of impotent man. The privileges of the unbeliever, they're all carnal. They're all temporal. They're all unsatisfying. The things that God provides in the life of the unbeliever, they don't even notice them. The unbeliever never experiences the personal nature of what it means to truly be loved. It's a sad condition. You know, it's sad. And the the unbeliever says stuff like this. Well, I don't want to be a Christian because I don't want to do what God tells me to do. And I don't want to be bound by somebody telling me what to do. You're bound every day of your life. You do what your flesh tells you. You do what the devil tells you. You do what the world tells you. You are a slave to the world. You'll die a slave to the world, and you'll end up in hell, a slave to the devil for all of eternity. But here in Christianity, you can be a slave to a master who loves you, and you can receive the benefit of all the promises that he gives to those who dwell in him and abide in him. Father, thank you for your word today of Psalm 91. What a refreshment. What an encouragement. Uh, Lord, thank you for showing and revealing these things to us that we can be satisfied in you and not waste our lives scrambling after all the frivolities of this world. Thank you that Christ is an abundant satisfaction for our souls. We pray this this morning by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.